Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Joyla Ferlano. And I'm Gregory Robinson. And today we have Anissa Morava with us. Welcome, Anissa. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on the show. So I'm super excited to have you here, especially because we work in close vicinities but do completely different research. So I'm super excited to hear more about what you do. Um, So just maybe to get started, can you just tell us a little bit about um, yourself? So what program you're in, what year you're in, and maybe what lab you're in? Uh, Sure. So I'm in my second year of my master's in kinesiology in the psychological basis. And I'm working out of the exercise and health psychology lab. Okay. And so when you say psychological basis, what does that refer to? Um, Essentially, that sort of refers to answering questions that look at things like quality of life, well-being, cognition, um, sort of anything under the psychological domain that also relates to exercise. Um, So I I know that there's a lot of different areas of kinesiology. Um, So can you maybe just briefly talk about how you fit into kinesiology and what other options there are? Sure. So there's several different pillars of kinesiology at Western. Um, There's like integrative biosciences, there's uh, sociocultural studies, and there's the psychological basis. And we kind of look at questions like Um, How does exercise affect your memory or how does exercise affect your social relationships? So kind of combining um, movement with psychology. What drew you to the lab that you're in currently? Um, Because you're not from, from around here, are you? I'm not. So I actually did my undergrad at McMaster and it was in psychology and neuroscience. And I did a little bit of research in my undergrad looking at executive functions. So those are things like, yeah, memory or like goal oriented behavior. And I thought it'd be kind of interesting to combine exercise with that. So that's why I'm here now. And How was the transition from McMaster undergrad studies to Western grad studies? Um, There was definitely a bit of a difference. Uh, Western's a lot bigger campus. Um, Graduate studies are really different from undergrad because you shift from having a lot of courses to focusing a lot on doing independent research. Um, But the people at Western so far have been super lovely and all my lab mates have been really helpful with that transition. That's awesome. And so what lab are you in? Uh, I'm in the exercise and health psychology lab. Is there like a professor with or PI? Yes. So that's Dr. Harry Prapavisis. Gotcha. What what exactly do you do there? Um, So in the lab, uh, we have exercise equipment. We also have a series of different cognitive tests that we can run. And we examine all sorts of different types of questions. So we look at cognition. We look at sedentary behavior. We look at well-being and how those are sort of all related. So I know that health psychology is a pretty broad term. Can you maybe just define that? Uh, Sure, so health psychology um, sort of focuses on different aspects of how we look at health and combine it with our life. So that can look at, for example, the relationship between exercise and well-being that can look at um, things like mental health concerns. It can even be something as simple as when you participate in sport, does that sort of improve your life? So health psychology is really broad, Mm -hmm. um, which makes it kind of interesting to look at. So let's dive right into your research. Can you just give us a brief summary about what you're looking at? Sure. So my research is kind of looking at the relationship between acute exercise 
and caffeine on working memory. So that's sort of your ability to kind of hold stimuli in your mind and work with it in the moment. Cool. And why acute exercise? Great question. Um, Essentially, uh, the reason we're looking at acute exercise is um, previous research in smoking literature um, found that acute exercise reduces craving and withdrawal symptoms in people who abstain from smoking. So we wanted to see if we could find similar results in caffeine withdrawal. And what type of exercise are you looking at? So We're looking at aerobic exercise, so specifically that's like brisk walking on a treadmill at about like a moderate intensity. Okay. And why that type of exercise? Um, So essentially aerobic exercise has been found in the literature to improve things like cerebral blood flow, affect, and like sort of mood. And what we wanted to see is something that is like really easy for a lot of people to do. So walking is something that... Um, doesn't require equipment, can be done indoors and outdoors, and is um, sort of easy to sort of prescribe to people. So I didn't do my degree in neuroscience or wasn't an undergrad in psychology or anything, but what does increased cerebral blood flow do? Okay, Um, so essentially um, inside the brain there's blood flowing at all times, and when certain regions of the brain are um, sort of doing work or they're being kind of co-opted to do something, you can kind of imagine like blood as the transportation device for oxygen, which kind of powers your brain to do what um, whatever task you're trying to do. Gotcha. So you're looking in like certain regions of the brain then? That's correct, yeah. yeah. So we're looking more so at like prefrontal regions of the brain. And prefrontal does? Uh, it essentially does um, <laughs> attention, working memory, decision making, and those types of tasks. Okay. So this is where you're doing a lot of thinking then and higher thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. But you're not actually using neuroimaging techniques, correct? That's correct. We're just using a behavioral task, which sort of measures working memory, which has been found in other sort of neuroimaging studies as the region responsible. Okay. (laughs) You following us, Greg? Yep. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Why don't you guys just ask the questions? (laughs) I'll just sit here. Um, Okay, so you're looking at memory, working memory. uh, And what are you, how are you measuring working memory? Um, so we use this really fun task called the NBAC task. And essentially what it does is it shows you a bunch of stimuli, so essentially letters, in a continuous stream. So it would be like A, F, G, H. And the task asks you to try and remember a certain amount of letters back. So one back would be one letter back from the letter you just saw. Two back would be two letters back. And this gets quite difficult after a certain period of time. And I can imagine, sorry, I don't even think I asked you this, but what is your um, population, your target population? Oh, yes. So we're looking at individuals who are caffeine and non-caffeine consumers between the ages of 18 and 64. Oh, wow. That's a huge range. Yeah, it's a huge age range because we're... Most of the people who have participated are from Western, so they're within the 20 to 30. Right. However, um, we're primarily looking at people who are caffeine and non-caffeine consumers and then seeing perhaps if there is a difference in age. So if you were to recruit somebody that was 64 and also have somebody that was 18, would you expect that there would be any age-related differences in their memory ability? Uh, yes, we would. So we would sort of expect that... Um, probably the reaction time would be slower. 
Um, perhaps they would have some difficulty remembering specific letters. However, we do screen for cognitive problems okay. beforehand um, in case they have something like dementia or mild cognitive impairment. And how do you screen for that, sir? Um, we basically look at using uh, just like a self-reported list of conditions that affect memory, and they just indicate whether they have those. So this is like basal differences, but like what about after your stimulus that you give, like exercise or caffeine? Do they have a, a difference in the boost in executive function? Um, yes, and so far um, we haven't run any age-related comparisons, but that would be an interesting um, sort of variable to look at. And so are you finding um, a larger difference right now? Where, Sorry, firstly, where are you with collecting your data? Are you completed? So I've completed all the caffeine consumers, and I'm still recruiting non-caffeine consumers. Okay, so you have, like, preliminary results, I'm assuming, then? Yes. And are you seeing differences between your exercise group versus your caffeine group? I am. So essentially what I'm seeing is that from baseline, both exercise and caffeine improve accuracy. Um, but we are finding so far in the caffeine consumers that um, exercise is actually improving accuracy more than caffeine. Interesting. And so this is accuracy in the NBAC test? That's correct. So gotcha. that accuracy is essentially uh, the percentage of errors they make. Yeah. And that's taking into account reaction time. Correct. Okay. So the reaction time is staying relatively stable. Gotcha. But their accuracy is improving. Interesting. Uh, why do you think that their reaction time isn't improving? That's a great question. Um, we're thinking perhaps that the sort of psychostimulant effects of caffeine are making people um, sort of focus their attention more. So that's why they're making less errors um, versus just kind of purely having a faster reaction to any stimulus in general. So I'm not a caffeine drinker myself. So... Um, based on sort of your research and what you know from the caffeine literature, is it generally beneficial to be drinking coffee, especially like let's say before an exam or something like that? Um, yeah, another great question. So if you're not used to the effects of caffeine, I probably wouldn't recommend the very first time that you try caffeine um, before a test situation because your body's not really used to the changes like the increase in blood pressure. You might feel jittery. Um, so I would probably try in a low stakes setting first. And then if you sort of like kind of how you feel after and you feel like it's helping you, perhaps maybe incorporating it into your regular use. So I, I love caffeine. <laughs> Me too. I have like my own espresso machine in my office. Oh, oh great. My gosh. <laughs> which is a little excessive, I know. But what my question is, is it better to be a person that drinks, normally drinks caffeine and before doing this executive function test, they then drink caffeine, or someone that doesn't normally drink caffeine, and before this executive function test, they don't drink caffeine. Which would be a better way to go about it? So you better to be more like Joyla or more like me. <laughs> Ooh, we're going head to head here. Um, <laughs> who will do better based on caffeine consumption? Yeah. So, so complete lack of it or use? Probably if we're comparing, uh, use of it would probably result in a small benefit over no use at all. 
Aww. Oh yeah. <laughs> is there a sex difference? Great. Maybe Joy will be better just because she's a female. Yeah, that's a good question. Good question. So sex differences have been found in specific cognitive tasks. I haven't run a sex analysis yet, but it would be interesting to see if um, whether you and Joyla would be different at baseline just based on um, your sex. And so, what exactly defines somebody that is a non-caffeine participant? So does that mean like literally never drinking caffeine? Um, Another really great question. So this was something I took a long time to sort of decide what that definition is. It's not sort of a cut and dry definition in the literature. Um, But how we defined it in our study is essentially a non-caffeine consumer is someone who consumes less than 100 milligrams of caffeine a week. So if they have a sporadic tea or a coffee once a week, that does not really define them as a caffeine consumer. While a caffeine consumer is someone who consumes 150 milligrams or more caffeine every day. Is that you, Greg? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) I, I don't count. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I should. Maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe we should start. Is there a difference in like the amount of caffeine? Have you looked at that at all? At all? Uh, yeah. So that's one of the variables I'm going to be examining in the caffeine consumers is that whether there is a difference in somebody who was kind of on the lower end of a caffeine consumer or a higher end and if that affected the results in any way. So I think from what I've seen in the little research I've done, <laughs> is that like low to moderate would be, is considered to be best. And then once you get really high, I study the heart. And so I know when you get really high caffeine consumption, that's generally when you have a lot of heart problems. Yeah. So I don't know if it's the same for the n- nervous system. but um, Yeah, that's actually a really great parallel. What they have found is that when the doses get quite high, then you have some of those sort of anxiogenic effects. Yeah. And that might actually um, reduce your performance. Yeah. So I think in cardiovascular, it's like an upside down J where it's like you don't want to have too little, but you don't want to, you really don't want to have way too, too much. much. Right. Yeah. So maybe it's something similar. But I think so. I yeah. think uh, cognition in this regard also kind of there's sort of an optimal zone and yeah. then too little, there's not much of an effect too much. It's kind of almost overstimulation. So how much exactly is 150 milligrams of caffeine? Um, so a that's day? looking approximately in between that like small to medium coffee. Just one. Just one. <laughs> oh yeah, I hit that. <laughs> so maybe you could be a participant for her in the uh, high I, range. I could be your very high caffeine. dose. That would be excellent. <laughs> Um, and you said you're a caffeine drinker yourself. I am. And so if you, so you drink every day, I'm assuming? That's correct. And if you don't, do you experience withdrawal symptoms? Is I, that a thing? I do. So I experience headaches and a little bit of sort of feeling tired. And for me, like having a co- one coffee is my normal. And then above that is sort of kind of when I start to get excessive. So I definitely do feel the effects. No way. I drink multiple (laughs) and I think maybe there's like sometimes I'm a little bit more tired but I don't I don't have any major effects I don't think so at least yeah yeah there will be days I just don't drink caffeine but usually I do that's really yeah I mean with withdrawal it's very um sort of individual some some individuals experience a lot of symptoms other people might experience just one or two so it would be interesting to see you on a withdrawal day (laughs) So are there other factors that could contribute to the effects of caffeine on the body? So things like sleep or what you've eaten or anything like that? Absolutely. So sleep is a big one. Sleep definitely affects your alertness, your kind of urge to do work-related activities. 
Um, so measuring sleep would have been a great thing to add into the study alongside with diet. So things like glucose um, and other things that you're eating throughout the day can also affect and interact with caffeine. Um, also, other substances such as alcohol and drugs change the metabolism of caffeine in the body. So are, have you been able mm -hmm. to control any of these in your study? Or? So um, essentially, participants aren't allowed to have alcohol or drugs 18 hours before they come in. Um, but we haven't been able to control for uh, diet. So that would be an interesting next step. Okay, cool. Do you do any tests to see, like, or not tests, just maybe like a survey or something to see if they're diabetic or any other potential nervous system effects? That's a great question. We don't screen specifically for diabetes, but we do screen for things like hypertension or hypotension. So how are you administering the caffeine? I'm not sure if you've mentioned this yet. So essentially the caffeine is in powdered form and we give 1.2 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So okay. participants get weight and then we multiply their weight by this amount and the powdered caffeine gets mixed into water. It's a little bitter. It's not as good as your normal cup of coffee and then they uh, basically drink that solution. Yummy. I think I'm going to pass on being a high dose. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> you almost had me. Oh, no. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, um, are you taking like BMI into consideration? But I guess that wouldn't really matter if the caffeine depends on the weight of the That's individual right. participant. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, and so why are you not using something like coffee, for example? So essentially the reason we're using caffeine is with coffee, there's a lot of other sort of factors that um, sort of affect people's alertness. So things like the smell, the taste, the warmth of the beverage itself. So those can kind of lead to specific expectancy effects. So people feel more awake just because they're holding that warm coffee. So what we wanted to do is just look at caffeine purely. Okay. But an interesting next step would be to use something that we use in a natural setting. So a cup of coffee. Is there any way, um, anything that you can think of that where one of your non-caffeine participants might not actually get to experience the effects of the caffeine that is given to them? Is there anything, any factors that could be at play? Um, potentially. Uh, some people aren't as responsive to the caffeine, and it might just be due to, like, the adenosine binding um, to receptors in the brain. Some people have different numbers of receptors and other um, sort of individual differences. So they might not feel that sort of hyper energetic effect as much as someone else. Okay, cool. So now you also study exercise, right? Yes. But they're not together. You don't do exercise and caffeine. That's correct. They're on separate days. Yeah. So maybe if you went into your PhD, would you do that? That would be an interesting follow-up study for my <laughs> to PhD combine, to, to do combine a combined them? caffeine and exercise together. Ooh, what would you expect to see yeah. in something like that? I wonder if you, I feel like potentially you would see like a synergistic benefit. So you would do even better. And because you have the sort of psychostimulant effects from the drug kind of combined with the um, things like cerebral blood flow and um, brain-derived neurotropic factor kind of being released and sorry what does that mean essentially it's like a molecule that's like kind of fuel for the brain okay okay hmm. um and i i have a sort of a separate question so how long does the caffeine effects last uh, now i know that you're doing you're administering your memory test immediately following um but just for everyday life if 
that there is an added benefit to drinking caffeine and also exercising, how long does that effect last? And would that be something that somebody should do directly before a test or like a few hours before? Mm, uh, great question. So for caffeine, um, it's about 20 to 30 minutes for it to reach that peak plasma level. So you would want to have it probably about at least half an hour before like an exam. Um, and then the effects last differing amounts for different people. So the average half-life, so that's for like caffeine, half of it to break down, is anywhere between four to six hours. So you can uh, anticipate some effects to last about that long, but it does vary. Are you taking notes, Greg? <laughs> yes. So I, I've realized that I will have my second cup of coffee before it's reached <laughs> half of its amount of caffeine in my blood. Oh, perfect. interesting. <laughs> and what about um, like other types of exercise? Is that something that you've explored? Um, so for this study in particular, we've chosen aerobic exercise um, just because the literature has found that aerobic exercise in particular affects um aspects of cognition like working memory resistance exercise would be interesting to see um, but i don't know the literature on that as okay. well. but now you do it you do it acutely though right that's correct so i think i've definitely heard that in the long run doing aerobic exercise is really good for you mentally but acutely how big of a difference does that make Hmm. So acutely, there's definitely some changes, but the magnitude is a lot smaller than in like a chronic exercise regimen. Yeah. So something like six months, you would probably see a larger change than a 20 minute bout. Um, so if I were like to go jog for like 20 minutes, would my IQ go up like one point? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. I don't think it's that easy. Yeah. yeah if only IQ uh, were uh, that movable, but uh, probably not. No? Okay. I imagine the like neural mechanism is a lot different between acute aerobic and chronic aerobic exercise. That's Correct very me if true. I'm wrong, you're, but... you're very on the right track. There's so many different um, sort of neurobiological changes that happen and they're different um, acutely versus chronically. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be something that would be interesting to measure as you go what kind of changes happen acutely versus chronically. And so I know you talked a little bit about the NBAC test, but why did you choose that test? And like, are there other memory tests that you could have used or... So the reason we chose the NBAC in particular is because a previous student in our lab had found positive results with um, using exercise as a means to change working memory for people who are abstaining from nicotine. So we wanted to see if we could replicate those results with caffeine. So okay. we wanted to keep the task the same. I see. Um, and But there are many different types. Mm -hmm. So there's like the Stroop task, which is when there's a word and let's say the word is blue, but the ink of that word is a different color. So you have a kind of interference between the color of the word and what the word means. Okay, so like that's response inhibition. Exactly, okay. so there's a task like that. There's another one that's called the flanker task, which is like a series of arrows, and one of the arrows is pointing the opposite way. Um, so you're trying to sort of figure that out. So there's many different types of tasks okay. that look at- I look at lots of cognitive functions. Lots of cognitive functions. So have you seen, from your initial, the reason why you started this, have you seen that exercise can help mitigate the effects of caffeine withdrawal? 
Yes. Yes. So what we have found is that when we brought in our poor caffeine withdrawn subjects into the lab and And how happy were they? (laughs) Very unhappy. And I definitely relate to them. So thank you to all those people who did that 12 hour (laughs) deprivation period. Um, But what we did find is when we got them to exercise, they had reduced withdrawal symptoms and they performed better on the cognitive task. Better as in, like, if they were to just have caffeine? Um, so or just withdrawal from caffeine? Uh, subjective withdrawal symptoms changed, um, and their performance, they got more accurate than when they were deprived. Gotcha. Is it possible that, um, so these people that are caffeine-deprived and... They're probably not happy, as you mentioned. Does mood, how does mood play into this? Uh, Mood is definitely a factor that can affect how people respond on subjective questionnaires and even how they perform on tests like the NVAC. Mm -hmm. We didn't really explore mood in this study. I know it's really complicated, And it's a bit tough to measure because it fluctuates, but that would be something that future research should definitely examine the effect of mood on these types of tests and as well as in withdrawal conditions. When they're doing their brisk walk after this caffeine withdrawal, are you there with them? Are they just there by themselves? (laughs) Do they have someone to talk to? They could be cheating. (laughs) Um, So essentially, they walk on a treadmill and I stand right beside them. Okay. And I basically chat up a storm while they're walking uh, <laughs> to keep them entertained and to ensure in case they need to stop at any point that I'm with them. So I know there's actual effects um, with socialization and cognition. Now, I know that the, I'm assuming the walk's only 20 minutes. Is that too short of a time for any type of socialization to actually have an effect on the brain and on cognitive function? So I've seen some literature with Um, socialization and cognition in chronic sort of applications. So people who are kind of going in three times a week for six months in groups to exercise, and that provided a lot of benefit acutely. I'm not quite sure how that would um, sort of what magnitude of an effect, but I would see that perhaps like even changes in mood, like a positive conversation might sort of make people feel better for a little bit after. Yeah, for sure. So I'm assuming you're there with all of your participants then to try to keep it as That's right. I'm staying beside every single one. What if you just get in a really good conversation with one and the other (laughs) one's like super boring? You know, like uh, look at the weather outside. I have had to come up with a lot of probing questions for people (laughs) and I have my routine down pretty down now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, we're finishing up now. Thank you so much, Anissa, again for joining us today. Um, so if our listeners would like to reach you, is there, do you have a contact um, uh, that we can provide for them? Yeah, so you can find me on the Exercise and Health Psychology website Perfect. or through my email. Excellent. And we can provide that online um, yep. as well. Okay. Thank you so much. And just before we go, I'd like to do a quick shout out to the SOGS Academic Committee who are hosting the annual Western Research Forum in March of uh, 2019. So the Western Research Forum is Western's largest interdisciplinary graduate conference. And they're currently accepting abstracts until January 16th. So if anyone is interested in submitting an abstract, including anyone here, um, more information on how to do that will be available on our website, gradcast.ca, with uh, this episode's information. 
So you're listening to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students at Western. We bring you graduate student interviews every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on CHRW, and you can also listen to all of our episodes on gradcast.ca. And if you'd like to join us and share your own research on a future episode, please email us at gradcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. The GradCast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.